Hey, Julie. Hey, Lisa. How are you? I'm good. It's been a it's been a big news running news week, hasn't it? It really has. Um, some really sad news to start off uh, regarding the running world, and that is that Boston Marathon icon Dick Hoyt, who is best known for pushing his son Rick in a wheelchair, died on Wednesday in his sleep at age 80. Um, we remember so vividly the many races that we ran where we would see Rick and Dick along the Boston Marathon course. Um, it, it's always so moving. And I don't know about you, but I feel like the times when I did see Dick pushing Rick along the course, they happened to be during my race, those times when I really needed something to get me out of my, my moment of hardship. How about you? Exactly. Like that, those are the memories that stick in my head of like, usually I, I feel like it was a lot of times around Heartbreak Hill when I would see them and I would feel like it was a struggle. And I would think, wow, if he can push that chair with his son in it up the hill. And he was always in such good, you know, and runners would pass and say, hi, great job. And he would smile. And it was such a, it, it would actually like make me get choked up a lot. Um, and, and I, it was, uh, you know, the last few years that we ran, um, uh, Dick did not run. It was somebody who would run in, in his place and push Rick. Um, so, but I still remember every year seeing, and we, we have a, even have a picture of us together with him at the expo one year. And you would never guess he was the age he was. He was, he, he passed away when he was 80 and he certainly didn't look it. Um, and, uh, you know, we, I think we had each bought a copy of his children's book, Rick's Story, which is a book that I would bring to any time I was like the secret um, breeding buddy that would come into my kids' class or anytime I did the youth running club at my kids' school, I would always bring this book. My kids, I think eventually were like, are you bringing that book again? But they loved it. And, and, and the kids that in the class and the kids in the running program always loved hearing it. And it was just, it was a great book written, you know, for children um, about, really about accomplishing whatever you set your mind to, even if you have challenges along the way. So it was such a great book and I still, I still have it. And I love that book. Yes. That it was one of my kids' favorites. It's still on um, Noah's bookshelf. It definitely, and Rick uh, Dick signed it um, that day when we met him. And I believe we met uh, together. We purchased the book and met the Hoyts at the expo in 2014. And that also was the last year that Dick pushed Rick along the Boston Marathon course. And of course, that was the year after the bombings when Meb won, when the race was just exceptionally spirited and exceptionally uh, just there was something magical about the race that year. And I remember running along the course with my high school friend, Mandy. We both happened to be around the same time in the corral. So we started together. And we were running together and we saw the Hoyts and it just gave me chills that year in particular, knowing that that was his last run with his son. And um, I think Dick Hoyt as an, as an athlete, of course, was a tremendous athlete, but he also was a pioneer in, in uh, showing others what it looks like to be able to take your child who has challenges. His child had cerebral palsy and by being able to show the world that and represent, hey, this is what I can do. So many other parents of children who have challenges were doing the same following Dick's model. And 
similarly, Rick, um, I think basing his father's example and seeing that he can do anything, as you mentioned, uh, he went on to Boston University. And um, the, the children's book, of course, talks about this, but Rick is highly accomplished himself. And the two of them are just tremendous role models and pioneers. And uh, Dick is an icon and he will be missed um, along the Boston Marathon course. And even though he wasn't actively running after 2014, he was still very much a part of the race. And you're really sad to hear that news. Um, yep. And there's still Team Hoyt, Team Hoyt still still exists and, and is very active and raises important funds and awareness. And like you said, kind of the one of the earlier, um, earlier examples of inclusion and that's what I loved about the book too. And, and they ended up doing 32 Boston marathons, I think, which is even beyond us two combined, our two finishes combined. So that is really impressive. And not only that, what I think was really cool is that they did Ironman uh, triathlon, which, you know, for anyone who doesn't know what Ironman is, it's a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, and then a marathon. So for anybody that is hard, but he, he rigged it up so that he could pull Rick on a, on a float in the swim and had a special bike so he could ride with him and then would push the wheels. So, I mean, it's, it's just um, amazing and such a great example of the human spirit and really, like you said, nothing kind of standing in, in someone's way and, um, and, and so inspirational when, when we saw him. So I think that even now that he's not with us and he's not going to be on the course, um, seeing Team Hoyt will always remind us of, of that, which is really, to me, really special. Amen. So speaking of the Boston Marathon, the other piece of huge news in the running world is that the BAA announced that registration is going to open for Boston Marathon qualifiers on April 20th and continue until April 23rd. Um, and anyone who has a BQ between 2018 and April 23rd essentially can register. And of course the big talk is what will the cutoff be? It's limited to 20,000 runners, and that includes charity runners. And we, um, as, as we understand it, they, it is basically they're taking the times from 2018 until April 23rd, 2021. And we say April 23rd, even though there's probably no race on that date, April 23rd, it means that if someone's- Especially April 18th, I think. April yes. 18th is the last day you can, you can race. And yeah. Yeah, so I mean, April 18th, correct, is the last weekday, weekend day that one could have a race. But what it does mean is let's say somebody is in tip top shape and ready to run a marathon and they're afraid that their time, their BQ time, is not enough of a buffer for them to get in. Theoretically, there are people that could do a Hail Mary marathon between now and the weekend of April 18th and perhaps get a better BQ time to try and enter. But it's gonna be tough. And uh, what are your predictions, Lisa? What do you think the cutoff is going to be? Oh, you know, I think there are so many different factors that come into play that can weigh one way or the other. So on the one hand, um, the window is really big. There are a lot of people who have qualifying times and not only that, but a lot of people who have aged it up. So they get the benefit of getting some extra time because the race is later than it would have been. So if they'd qualified with a small buffer for, let's say, the 40 to 44 age group, but they're turning 45 this year before race day, they get that extra time. So now they have a bigger buffer. So 
that um, you know is is on one end of the spectrum, and then the other though is still some uncertainty as to what travel will be allowed in October. What what are the restrictions on international travel going to look like? Um, who, will people feel comfortable? Some people may not feel comfortable coming and running with with twenty thousand people. Um, so and not only that, but there are all of the majors are now right around the same time. Chicago is the day before. So if there's somebody who's really committed and really excited about running Chicago, they may decide. I'm going to skip Boston this year. Same thing with some of the other majors. So it's really hard to tell my guess. And it seems to be the chatter. It, it seems to be sort of the consensus is somewhere between 10 and 15 minutes, maybe the buffer this year. Again, I, I don't know. And um, I think that sounds like a safe, a safe, uh, safe buffer. So that's it, it's hard. And like you said, um, some people are looking to kind of do a Hail Mary marathon. And, and we have a lot of runners who are signed up for um you know, uh, late April or early May marathons that do look like they're going to take place, but those will no longer qualify people for this year's Boston Marathon. Um, so somebody who's doing like a May 1st or May 2nd marathon, they won't be able to use that time. Let's say they get a Boston qualifying time. They, that'll be past the the, the qualifying um, you know, window, the, the entry time. So, so again, I think that would be my, I would guess 10 to 15 minutes would probably be a safe buffer, but Lots of factors, lots of lots of different things to, to take into consideration and see how they play out. For sure. And you bring up a good point. We have a lot of runners who are running marathons this spring, but after the cutoff for 2021, um, if those runners already have a BQ and get into 2021, they can still, of course, use that time to um, allow them to be in a move up in their corral. That's always possible. And second, second. Um, now that the BA has announced the registration window, typically what that means is that any race run on or after April 23rd, 2021, would then be a valid time to be used for Boston 2022. So for those looking to qualify for 2022, um, keep that in mind and know that if you feel like you can't control, none of us can what time the BAA can accept for 2021, well, at the very least, you can look toward 2020, 2022 and say, well, at the very least, I still want to run a marathon and I'd like to qualify for 2022. And by then, things hopefully will shake out where we'll be back to a BQ buffer that is a lot more reasonable than your estimate of 10 to 15 minutes. My estimate is 10 minutes. I think I'm selfishly making that estimate because my buffer for myself is 12 minutes, about 12 minutes. So I'm hoping it's 10 minutes. Okay, but I'm going for I'm 10 gonna, minutes then. <laughs> I'm gonna scale okay. it to 10 minutes. 10 minutes. But I will tell you like how I feel about it personally, and I hope this helps those out there who are anxious. I'm very zen about this. I feel like if it's meant to be, it's meant to be because this is a situation over which we have no control. I'm super grateful the BAA is trying to do this. I am also recognizing in the back of my mind that the city of Boston may pull the plug on this at some point. We just don't know. So for me to sit here and stress about whether my time will or won't be accepted is just not something that is in my wheelhouse right now to stress over. I have too many other things going on, positive and negative, but I can't control this situation. So if I get accepted, fabulous. If I don't, fabulous. I won't be training for a marathon over the summer. I'm still going to go up to Boston. We have a hotel room. I will go and very happily cheer on the runners, including you, Lisa. Your buffer is, is much wider than mine. So I know that if a race takes place, I 
will absolutely be on the course cheering. And also, like last time, we hope to do some podcasting from Boston and do all the fun things. So it'll still be a great weekend, whether I run or not. Um, But at any rate, I hope that for those out there listening that are anxious, I hope that you too can find a way to figure out how to look at this big picture, zoom out and realize that we have no control. So just wherever the cards may fall, they fall and recognize that this doesn't take away from the fact that you have a BQ and that you are still a runner. You are still a Boston marathon qualifier and we're all just doing the best we can after a year of this shit show. I love that perspective. And I think that's, um, I hope that that helps people kind of sit back and just take a breath. And like you said, realize that it's, it's out of our control and however it shakes out all of the speculation and the stress and the, you know, the chatter that's going on now, it's great. And I get people want to talk about it, but it doesn't matter. And you know what I guess, what you guess, it doesn't matter until it all shakes out and we see. Um, and like you said, I think you raise a really good point is if, you know, the, the, the message, the press release from the Boston Marathon said, if road racing is allowed to take place. And so there's still an if. We hope that it happens. I don't know about you, but I personally felt when the announcement came out that it gave me like even, even, and I do hope that I make whatever cut it is, but even if I didn't, I felt like it gave us some light at the end of the tunnel, like some normalcy is coming back. Even if we went up there and just cheered on runners and watched elites run or something like that, just to know that the wheels were turning again that made me feel really good. And just to think about being in Boston again, and to think about we could be there and there could be a race going on gave me, um, gave me hope again. So that was, um, that was really good. I I would like to just touch on one kind of related um, topic that some people are talking about is in the past, if you had a streak, which is 10 consecutive or more, you were actually admitted to the race before general registration opened. So you didn't need a buffer. As long as you had a qualifying time of any time, you were let in early and then the registration opened. And, um, you know, my question was, are they going to do that again for those? I have a streak and we have friends who have streaks. And is that going to happen again? They have not said anything. Um, I talked to one of our friends who also has a streak and said, what do you think? And he said, look, there are only about 500 streakers that fall into that category. So he would think that 500, sure, they'll let them in early, but we haven't heard anything. So I've seen that question asked on a couple of the forums and Facebook pages of what are they going to do about streakers we haven't heard. Um, so, um, you know, that'll be that'll be interesting to see. And charities, too. That's been another question. And we actually have um, some runners who were supposed to run Boston last year as part of a charity. And they have heard from the charities that the charity will be getting bibs. It's just a question of how many. So the big charities actually don't even know yet how many they'll get, but you know, will it be reduced from what they had? How will they distribute those to the people who raised money and didn't get to go? That's you know up to the charities. But so that's there's still some questions as to um, charities. I did see something mentioned that the BAA did send international tour operators. So in the past there have been big international tours that say you can come run the Boston Marathon through us. It's not the same as an international runner just coming to run the beat, the Boston Marathon, but it's a tour. So you sign up from whatever country you're in for the Boston Marathon tour, you get a bib, you pay a fee, you come, they put you up in a hotel. Um, and the BAA did send those tour operators a message to say, we are not doing that this year. So they apparently have cut down on that international tour group um, contingent. So um, it'll be interesting to see how, again, the charity numbers, the international numbers, the streaker number, how, how do those play into the the total number. But I will say 20,000 was a lot more than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be under 10,000 was was my guess. 20,000 can, I mean, 
think about it for after a year of not being in any crowds to, to think about being around 20,000 people is um, is pretty uh, hard for me to even grasp right now. And actually one other thing I had mentioned to one of our runners who's running a later fall, a later spring marathon who said, oh darn, like I won't have a chance to qualify. I said, you know what? It might be better to look for 2022 when things are really back to normal. This year may be different. It may still be, um, who knows, what are the buses gonna look like to Hopkinton? What is the start gonna look like? It's gonna look different probably this year. And so maybe for those who haven't yet qualified or don't know if you're gonna make the cutoff, Look forward to that 2022 year when we will probably be back in normal Boston Marathon full force, which is the best way to experience it. I feel like a year ago, we were actually saying the exact thing about 2021. Look forward to 2021. So fingers crossed, never say never. But yeah, I mean, my first reaction when they said 2020, I'm sorry, 20,000 people, my first reaction was, what's the difference between 20,000 and 30,000? But I really started thinking about the specific logistics of Boston and really what it's about is the buses because that's an indoor space. Um, and, you know, of course they're going to do their best in the corrals to space people out, but it's really hard with 20,000 people at runners to be spaced the entire time. So I'm guessing that it's more about the buses because that's an indoor space versus the rest of um, the race setup. So um, if it rains, I think it could be tricky because everybody would be squeezed inside tents. So I think those are sort of the, the reasons that they limited it to 20 versus, you know, saying what's the difference because I, it's not just an outdoor event. There are indoor elements to it as opposed to other races. That's a good point. And maybe at some point they made the, the, the determination that two-thirds size is what is going to take to to space people out that you know maybe two-thirds of people on the bus two-thirds of people and if if an expo takes place you know two-thirds may give the extra breathing space that um that they wouldn't have had otherwise like you said with that thirty thousand, and you're at full capacity you don't get that little bit of extra space so that's a really a really good point absolutely so up next um we have an incredible guest we are super excited to welcome Rachel Tambling, Dr. Rachel Tambling. Uh, she's a professor at UConn. She's a runner. She's a family therapist. And she's written a number of articles about therapy and running and the intersection of the two. And what we wanted to talk to her about today, and it was a great conversation, was that whole phrase, uh, running is my therapy. And while running can support our overall mental health, when is it that we need to look at our running um, as something that we're supporting our mental health, but when is it that we need to look at ourselves and say, I need to go to therapy? What is the litmus test or what are the signs that we need a therapist? And she was super helpful with that. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about mental health over the past year, particularly, but you know, our goal is, is to help take away the stigma. We, we know that a lot of people are working on that. And the more people, the better to show that it is okay to not be okay. And our conversation with Rachel just gave some nuts and bolts advice and also some signs and also talked about exercise and how we can use it to our benefit. But when exercise can sometimes be sort of a disadvantage because it's masking when we actually do need therapy. She was so smart. It was so fun to talk to her. And she's also a terrific runner. 
So it's just a really interesting conversation. And, you know, we reached out to her. We weren't sure if she would have the time to speak with us. And we were so grateful that she responded so quickly and was willing to come on our show. And this is definitely a, a conversation that we hope uh, all of our listeners will find useful, uh, especially during these times. Yeah, I thought it was great. And I think, um, you know, a lot of us prior to this year and now especially this year um, feel like we put a lot of effort into running to like to to let that stress, you know, and, and we always talk about this running for us, you know, we came into it during law school and it was like kind of a stress release for us. And that's how we cope. A lot of us, you know, I always talked about like running through some of the hardest times of my life. Like that's, that's been my solace. And, um, but that's a good question is when, when, you know, when is running not enough or when do you kind of go past that line into healthy running into where it becomes you know, unhealthy and that you need to then get some professional help to help you balance that out. And, you know, it's not running from our problems, <laughs> you know, using running as therapy or running from our problems, like sometimes, and, and a lot of times I think we may ask ourselves that, or we may ask that with, as coaches with our runners that are reaching out to us for help of like, you know, can we as coaches help them with a running plan where they may need other, you know, other professional help. So, and then there's no, there's no stigma in that. And I think that's such an important part too, is that, we feel like we can't talk about that. Like, look, if you have, we have runners who get a hurt ankle and they go right to the, you know, they have no no hesitation to call us and say, hey, I need a referral for an orthopedist or a physical therapist. But we very rarely get runners saying like, I need some help with mental, you know, my mental health and, and some, a, a therapist. So super helpful to talk to her. Absolutely. So before we go, I just wanted to um, make one quick correction. Last week, we talked about the Heroes Half Marathon, a local half marathon that is going to be run in May. And I believe registration is almost full. There might be a few spots left and we'll put the link in our show notes, but it's being run in memory and in honor of fellow runner, Fred Trackman. I had mentioned that he passed away accidentally. I had mentioned that he was he passed away of lung cancer, actually was pancreatic cancer. And I just wanted to make that correction. I think um, that's something important and I apologize for that. But there are very few spots left, fortunately, and um, we're really very much looking forward to the fact that a lot of our runners have entered, and I think it's a great thing to do in memory of Fred. So, Lisa, uh, I hope you have a great week. It's always great to talk to you. I feel like it's one of the highlights of my week, so glad we could chit-chat today. And uh, without further ado, here is Dr. Rachel Tampling. Hey, listeners. Are you enjoying our podcasts and coaching advice? Do you feel like some guidance and accountability could help you stay motivated and focused during these uncertain pandemic times? We love connecting with our listeners and collaborating to make training work for your goals, your life, your personality. As a thank you for listening to our podcast, we want to offer any new clients $20 off the first month of coaching, which is normally $150. Email us at julieandlisa at runfartherandfaster.com to set up a time to connect over the phone to learn more and be sure to mention this special offer as one of our loyal listeners. Rachel Tambling, welcome to Hi. the Run Farther and Faster podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. So Rachel, um, to get started, we just would love for you to introduce yourself and tell us where you, you're from, where you live, and your professional background. Sure. Um, I am from Michigan originally. Now I live in Connecticut and I am a associate professor at University of Connecticut in the Department of Human Development and Family Sciences. And my educational background 
is in counseling. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I am still a practicing therapist, um, former director of the master's and PhD level marriage and family therapy programs at the University of Connecticut. And my research interest is really in um, understanding service utilization around behavioral health. So I'm interested in things like how does someone find a therapist? How does someone decide that they need a therapist? How do we manage our mental health literacy as a culture? What are the things that we're doing that promote or diminish mental health literacy, which includes within it, not only what do you know about mental health and how do you practice with mental health, but how do you seek help for mental health or substance use related circumstances? So I'm really interested in just understanding that globally around what our help seeking practices are and how our cultural stories around mental health both help and hinder that. That's very relevant um, to us as a run as running coaches and a running mm -hmm. podcast because a lot of people take up running as a form of therapy and actually yes. Julie and I both always say we found running as a form of stress release when we were in law school and there was a lot of stress and it wasn't you know we didn't run when we were younger we weren't athletic but running to us mm -hmm. was just a way to really let off steam and a, and a, a, a way to release stress so a lot of runners we think and, and runners that we've coached are looking for a way to mm -hmm. to to manage some of these anxieties these issues that are coming up yeah and, and so your your expertise in finding a therapist and how do we know when we find a therapist is very relevant to us because a lot of our runners use running as therapy but yes yeah you really need a therapist. And, um, you know, that's, that's what we're going to talk about today, but before yeah. we get into well, that, and I was going to say, let me add in too. I'm, I'm also a coach. I'm an RRCA certified yeah. running coach and, um, I'm the RRCA state rep for Connecticut. So I've been involved in running for a really long time, both as a runner myself and as a running coach. And right now I coach kids in, um, track and field as well as adults, through my regular running coaching. So I see this, you know, as a professional counselor, as a trainer of professional counselors, as a running coach, a runner, and as someone who just exists in the world and, you know, pays attention to the narrative around mental health. Yeah. We often say we wish we had our, like our, 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 degrees in counseling or therapy, um, because it really does come in handy when, when you're coaching folks. So yeah, so along those lines, tell us a little bit about how you got into running and how you got involved in the RCA. So I got involved in running because I was a soccer player. Um, and in order to be good at playing soccer, you have to run a lot. <laughs> it was really and truly, I didn't I didn't see myself as a runner. I didn't fall in love with running as a discipline. I really saw it as a means to an end in terms of my performance as a soccer player, because that's a really limiting factor for a lot of high school athletes is their endurance. Um, and I ran with my high school best friend, Megan, we're still friends. Um, and you know, that really started it for me, but what really I think was the tipping point was um, I had knee surgery. So I tore my ACL, MCL, meniscus in two places, what they call the unhappy triad. And I woke up from surgery saying, when can I run? Not when can I play soccer? Not when can I walk without a cane or a limp or something like that? I woke up from surgery saying, how long until I can run again? Um, 
And what I had done to my knee was really catastrophic. It was a difficult surgery. Um, and so there was kind of a question mark about whether I would ever run again. And that was the, that was the thing that I was sad about. It wasn't, I don't know if I'll return to playing soccer. I was more concerned with running and that surprised me. Um, and just really shifted how I think about myself as a runner. Um, because I, I had been a very serious runner before that, um, but never really thought of that as my primary sport, the way that I did after surgery. So that was really a turning point for me in terms of how I thought about myself as a runner. Um, so I've been running for, I don't know, almost 30 years, fairly consistently. The longest break I've ever taken was six months for knee surgery. Um, I also am a spinning teacher and yoga instructor. So fitness has been a really important part of what I, how I do my life. Um, I got involved in the RRCA because I got involved with um, a local club, which I was the president of for a period of time. And through that, just met some people who were in the RRCA and the Connecticut state rep, um, was stepping down after doing many years of service. And they said, Hey, do you want to do this? And I was like, I don't really know what that means or what that entails, but okay, sure. <laughs> so what does it entail? What does it entail when you are a state rep? What do you do? Yeah. So you are basically the liaison between the national organization and state level organizations. So basically what I do is I get to go run with all the clubs that are around me. <laughs> That's it. Um, I talk. I talk to clubs about their membership with RCA, just trying to encourage them to continue their membership because there are a lot of great benefits um, of being part of a national organization. Whether your identification is as a coach or as a race director or as a running club, um, in addition to providing liability insurance, which we all need, there are great resources for every possible problem, difficulty, anything that you could encounter. Um, so RCA is a great resource and. My job is to liaise with the local clubs, race directors, and coaches. Um, so I go to a lot of Which races. Sounds fun. Well, it's well, it's yeah. super fun. I go to a lot of it races to represent the RCA. I run with clubs and talk to presidents about what they're experiencing within their clubs to help RCA drive policy. And then we also sponsor the state championship series, which is a series of races in each state that are state championships and I get to go to those and see the really fast people run well. And that's a fun thing too. And it's really just about being part of what's the future of running. Um, I serve as a consultant to RCA in mental health. So I wrote our coaching protocol for talking about mental health with your coaches, your clients. Um, there's information on the RCA website right now about mental health and running um, that I developed that content for them. And RC has a great program called the Road Scholars, which is for post-collegiate runners who are trying to make a go of it professionally. And I consult and teach in that group about managing yourself as a commodity and how that influences your mental health. Because when you're a professional runner, your self is the thing you're selling. Your self is the commodity. And that can be really difficult from a mental health standpoint. So I do a lot of consultation with RCA as well um, with regard to policy development around mental health. That's great. So um, I love what you just said, though, in terms of introducing mental health to coaches and how to counsel their coaches, as you said, 
um, we did take note of um, the guidelines that you provided to the RCA and how we first learned about you was that mm -hmm. publication that we thought that those guidelines were so fantastic and appropriate for us as coaches. And we looked at the author and that's what prompted us to reach out to you, Rachel, because we so appreciate those guidelines because while we see many t-shirts that say this running is my therapy, running, running is not therapy. So before we get to that topic, we want to ask you personally, how has your running influenced your approach as a therapist and how has therapy influenced your running? I think therapy has influenced my running more than the other way around. Um, just because I, I really try to be thoughtful and sensitive about how casually we approach a lot of mental health things. So this is maybe going to get a little into my personal soapbox. Um, but one of the things that just really bothers me is how casually we use mental health associated words in our culture and in our language. So people will say, oh, I'm so depressed. When what they really mean is I feel sad or I had a panic attack when what you really mean is I feel stressed out. And we do that with running too. We minimize and undermine the power of the word therapy. Is running therapeutic? Absolutely. Cooking is therapeutic. Spending time with your friends is therapeutic. Going for a walk in nature is therapeutic. Art is therapeutic. Music is therapeutic. Is it therapy? No. And I think where we get into trouble with running is therapy is when we start to talk about addiction. And um, I know that running can be a super important tool for a lot of people who are um, in recovery and long-term substance recovery. I think that's a beautiful thing and a wonderful thing, but we also have a tricky relationship. I think as runners, most runners with the data and with our success and how we conceptualize that. Um, you know, and I just hate to hear things like, oh, I'm so depressed because I didn't perform well in this race. No, you're sad. And it is sad. And how do we embrace that as a culture? I think, um, it's really difficult for us as a culture, you know? And so when we blur those lines and we use the language incorrectly, it makes it more difficult to identify when we have a real problem. So I say, oh, I had a panic attack when what I really mean is I'm stressed out. It makes it that much more difficult to identify a panic attack in ourselves or in other people. And research evidence indicates that it makes it more difficult for us to be sensitive about that in other people, because what we do is we associate our feelings of stress with a panic attack which makes us minimize the experience of an actual panic attack, which newsflash, it feels like you're dying. Like if you're actually having a panic attack, you think you're dead and you're probably on the way in the ambulance to the emergency room. But we minimize those experiences because we misuse the language and it helps us create a framework in our head that minimizes the experience of depression or anxiety, things like that. So I, it, it bothers me, but not as much as some other things. Is that fair to say? Like, I don't like the use of the phrase running is therapy, but it's a lot better than the ways that we misuse other types of mental health language. That makes perfect sense. And we really appreciate you pointing that out because honestly, it's something in everyone's vernacular and, and we don't often catch realize when we're saying these things and how it does diminish 
those who yep. have actual diagnoses. It's a really important point, and we appreciate you bringing that up. Well, um, and, you and also- I think it's really important for women, just like since we're all women here too, like a postpartum depression is so hard because a lot of women experience postpartum depression. It's the mo- one of the most common medical conditions, but we can't identify it is women. And the reason we can't identify it is because we think all these things are normal. Like we think that the baby blues is normal. We think that not wanting to get out of bed is because you're tired. We think that feeling like it's hard to bond with your baby or that you just don't feel like a good mother is just part of being a mom. We do the same thing. I think this is really important because it carries over into the COVID pandemic. Like for better, for worse, we have normalized what is a really scary set of symptoms. So I see on social media now, someone saying like, I couldn't get out of bed. I cried all day. I, you know, am drinking more than usual things like this. And I'm like, that scares me because that's actually a set of mental health symptoms that are indicative of mild depressive disorder that could be benefited by medication and therapy. But because we have normalized these things, we've minimized them to the point that we're unable to identify serious medical conditions. That's really problematic. And I or think, we think they're normal or we think they're just a normal part of being. Right. And I think your point before too, by minimizing them, then the rest of us will say to somebody like that, oh, we all feel that it. way. It's okay. You'll, you'll just, you know, go for a run. You'll feel better or yes, you know, yes, X, yes, do yes. X, Y, Z, you'll feel better. And, and like you said, if it's, you know, like a panic attack example, if somebody's actually having a panic attack, if it's not, it's not, you think you're like, dying for real. Right. Exactly. So I, I always tell people like when I talk about this, so a lot of this relates to mental health literacy and the easiest way to think about mental health literacy is to think about its comparator, which is physical health literacy. So I know and everyone knows exactly what the symptoms of a cold are for me, right? I can identify them really quickly. I can say, oh, if I have, for me, it's always sneezing. I never sneeze unless I'm coming down with something. So stuffy nose, sneezing, feel a little more tired. I need to be on the lookout because I have a cold, right? I also know what I need to do to treat that. I know what the expected course of it is. It doesn't alarm me, but I know what it is. Now, extend that to, I have a sinus infection. I know exactly what the symptoms of a sinus infection are. I know who I need to go see to get help with that. I know that medication will help me. And I have a lot of assurance that I'll be fine after a course of treatment. We have that physical health literacy down pat, but we don't have that with mental health literacy. We don't have a, like, I have a mental health cold equivalent. We don't have a good like litmus test for this stuff that I'm experiencing right now is a little concerning. And we really don't have a good litmus test for this is bad and I should go seek professional help the same way we do with physical health. We hear about that a lot too on on college campuses with like Mm -hmm. collegiate runners or athletes who have trainers on site where if you hurt your ankle, you can go get it wrapped and get ibuprofen or whatever you need. Or, and if you, you know, hurt your hamstring, you have a physical therapist there to help you, but do you have a mental health expert there to help you when you're having those symptoms? And I think that's the same with runners as runners. We know, uh uh-oh, if my piriformis is hurting. I'm going to take a couple days off. If my Achilles and you're is like, hurting, here's the checklist, like point one, point right. two, point. <laughs> we know, but if I'm waking up in the morning and I just can't drag myself out of bed to go for a run, or I'm feeling these, we don't know 
who to go see, what do, and it, it's not as, as, and, and not only that, but not talking about it. Like yeah. you said, all these other things, like I'll say like, I have a cold, I feel sniffles, but am I going to say, I'm feeling really like down today. I'm feeling really like tired. I'm feeling really like yeah. I can't get out I'm of bed. I'm struggling with my mental health today. Yeah. We're not as likely to talk about it. So that's a really, think a, a really um, interesting point. We just wanted to take a quick break to give a shout out to our newest sponsor, UFOs. If you're a longtime listener, you know that UFO shoes are an integral part of our recovery. And we've been wearing their new boots all winter long. UFOs are the original recovery footwear brand, helping to reduce load and stress so your body can rebuild throughout the day. Often the aches and pains we're feeling in our feet, ankles, knees, and even our hips can be due to not wearing supportive shoes. We wear our supportive running shoes when we're running, but what do we wear when we're not running? UFOs reduce shock impact on the body by 37%, making it easier for your body to recover faster. Stay tuned to our podcast and social media channels this month for a chance to win a pair of UFOs. And check them out now on their website at UFOs, O-O-F-O-S dot com. How can runners, or really this applies to anybody, really identify when it's when going to a, a specialist, like, you know, a, like a physical therapist or, a, or an orthopedist, but when going to a mental health specialist would be in their best interest rather than just going out for a run. Yeah. I'm going to point everybody to the resource on the RRCA website. Maybe you guys can link it through. Um, but I have some checklists there for what to attend to. So the big ones that most people experience are anxiety and depression. So anxiety, real anxiety, isn't stress. Real anxiety is a physiological experience. So real anxiety is coming from that like deep internal sense of everything is not okay. And so we experience racing heart, racing thoughts that don't have necessarily a trigger. So if you're feeling that like racing heart, racing thoughts, sweaty, stressed out feeling, but without an identifiable trigger, that would be a time to go seek help, right? For depression, any sadness that is fairly consistent and not congruent with your experiences is something to pay attention to, is like the cold of mental health, right? If you're feeling like it's hard to get out of bed, not because you didn't get enough sleep, but because you just don't want to, you're feeling like kind of a lack of interest in activities that you would normally enjoy, or you just feel bummed and it hangs around and it's not related to something that's happening in your life, right? Like it's absent. Once again, the triggers, that's when you might want to pay attention to it. And everything isn't necessarily a rush to the psychiatrist and get some medication situation. This is, you know, like the mental health cold versus the mental health sinus infection, right? For a mental health cold, when you're just starting to notice these things, it's something to talk about with someone you trust um, to get more information about and where the real tipping point is, is when it interferes with your life. So if your anxiety makes it difficult for you to fully engage with your family or to really enjoy activities or to concentrate and remember things at home or at work, that's when it's time to go seek help for depression. Same thing is true, right? If you're feeling a little down, maybe it's time to talk to a friend, but if it interferes with your ability to get to your meetings on time, to take care of yourself or to get enjoyment out of activities that you used to enjoy, that's when it's time to go see someone. That's great advice. I think there's, it's complicated though, during these times, because everything is so 
out of the ordinary. So there are identifiable, beha identifiable behaviors that everyone has sort of been experiencing during this wave. However, like you said, it often if it's not linked to a specific, if it's rather linked to a specific event, then you can sort of figure out what it is. But this specific event of 2020 and 2021 is, is life right now for many yeah. people. So what are, it's what not are a specific event. See, that's where the thinking is wrong. This is not a specific event. A specific event is I really wanted a job and I didn't get it. And now I am bummed and I'm going to spend a couple days licking my wounds, watching bad movies, laying in bed. That's a specific event. It does not count as a specific event if it lasts for a year. <laughs> so that is super helpful because I think you've hit the nail on the head. There are a lot of people out there struggling that are using this specific event to explain away the symptoms you just described, blaming it on yeah. what is not an event, but it's life. And so that leads us to our specific question. When would you say someone should seek therapy and how should they go about doing that? Yeah, great question. So at my UConn job, this is actually something I've researched. So I'm, I have publications in scientific journals about the mental health impact of COVID specifically. Um, and what I know from my research is that rates of depression and anxiety that people are reporting, just people general, what we would call a community sample, which is like people who are not in treatment. So anybody who's out there in the community, the rates of depression and anxiety that people are reporting are catastrophic. They are at or above what we would see for what we would call a clinical sample, like an in-treatment sample. So 20%, um, which is double the lifetime prevalence rate of depression, incidentally, 20% of our sample was experiencing depression that was moderate or more, right? People are really, really struggling. And there's a real lack of awareness around, around that. Um, and it's because everyone is sort of saying, oh, this is just COVID. It's where we're at right now. Um, and that's troubling because it's really problematic in terms of mental health. And what's been interesting about COVID is that anxiety isn't the big player. You know, I think when all this started, mental health professionals, myself included, kind of thought that anxiety would be the big player, that we would have infection fears and that type of reaction. But what we're seeing is actually more loss, is depressive symptoms related to loss, loss of ritual, loss of opportunities, loss of social settings that we valued, loss of routines related to our employment, because that's something we get a lot of self-worth out of. So we're seeing a lot of loss, like grief reactions. So even though it's COVID, so when you should, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, we talked to George a little bit about this as well. And how, what about the subset of youth kids that are, you yeah. know, that are going through this and especially our teenagers, um, but really all the kids that are going through this, how, what about, and we know a lot of us as parents, we worry, oh, they're falling behind in school because they're not in school. Yeah. And really yeah. the, the issue is that they're not socializing and they're our, having a lot of loss too. Our kids are amazing. I mean, look at what we put on kids. Like. I just, I don't think there's enough credit to kids around what we put on them. Like we ask them to give up their entire lives, literally everything that is meaningful to a child. We ask them to give up overnight, no warning, just gone. 
So how do you, how do you, what do you tell parents? School and kids are doing better than experts thought they would be, which speaks to the resilience of children. But I think it's also really, we don't know what the long-term effect of this will be. We've never had any, in our country, we've never had anything like this. There are parallels in other um, countries and settings. I have a bunch of friends who study disasters, um, particularly natural disasters. And we know that there are long-term effects for children. So I don't think that we know the full effect on children at this point right now. But we also don't know how to identify mental health difficulty in ourselves. There's some really scary research out there that says that most parents can't identify clinically significant depression in their children or other people's children until the kid tries to kill themselves. Just pause on that for a moment, that it takes an attempt at suicide for most adults to know that kids are struggling. That's really so how serious. Do we, how do we as parents, what do we do as parents? And that's, you know, again, you know, veering off our topic a little bit, but yeah. a lot of us and a lot of our listeners are parents and we are, we are worried about that. Like, how do we as parents protect our kids or help that help them manage what they're going through? I think this is when we have to get really serious as a culture about changing the stories around mental health. We have to start talking about it. We have to start making this a part of the way that we talk to each other routinely. We have to start making it part of how we talk to children routinely. Just how are they doing? Really and truly, how are they doing? What are they sad about? What's on their mind? How easy or hard was it to get up today? What's stressing them out? And really taking seriously, especially with little ones, their somatic complaints, like headaches, stomach aches, those kind of things. Because for little ones, that's usually where we see it is that they'll feel like a stomach ache or a headache or that kind or, or the don't want us that little kids got, you know, like I don't want to um, really start paying attention to those kind of things and making it part of the conversation. There's a lot of great literature out there about emotional intelligence and how to talk to kids about emotion and help children deal with emotion that I think is really critical at a time like this. So the same markers are true for COVID is for any other time, right? Why would we change the marker of you should seek help just because of COVID? That doesn't make sense to me. That would be like saying like, oh, I think I have appendicitis, but I think I'll just let it burst here at home so I can die because it's COVID. It just doesn't make sense to me. If, if you were at that threshold that I talked about where it's impacting your life, period, end of story, that's when you go seek help. Same thing is true for kids. If you see your kids not able to enjoy activities that they used to find enjoyable, you see them really struggling with emotional management, just not being themselves, it's time, right? The marker is always going to be, it impacted your life. If it impacts your life, it's impacting your life. It doesn't matter if it's the middle of an earthquake, if it's in COVID, if the sun is shining and the birds are chirping and everything is fine. If it's impacting your life, it's impacting your life. Our runners are often asking us how they can optimize their recovery. And aside from getting more sleep, one of our number one tips is compression socks. Compression socks can help increase blood flow from your legs to your heart and raise your blood oxygen levels. They also minimize leg pain and cramping and reduce swelling. So they're great for after that long run or hard workout. Our favorites are Lily Trotter's compression socks. They are the strongest compression that you can get without a doctor's prescription. And they are beautiful and fun to wear with your running gear. We love their Battle Axe collection, which recognizes powerful, unstoppable women warriors. But the socks can be worn by men or by women. So we're happy to have them as a sponsor and they are offering our podcast listeners 20% off 
with the code RFF20 on the website, Lily Trotters. That's L-I-L-Y-T-R-O-T-T-E-R-S dot com. That's great tangible advice. If it is impacting your ability to function the way you normally function, then that's the point at which you say, I need some external help. So how how do you advise someone who's like, huh, I think that's me. What, what should their next step be? And um, it, particularly those who may have some economic barriers, what advice do you have for seeking so, therapy? Great question. So something I get a lot is people really questioning if their health insurance covers behavioral health. And behavioral health includes mental health treatment as well as substance use treatment services. So there's actually a federal parity law. This is actually a federal regulation. So some states had earlier laws than others, um, but at the federal level, there is a parity rule, which means that private and um, state authorized insurances have to offer behavioral health parity so that services for behavioral health are not restricted at different levels or charged at different levels than they would be for physical health. So what this means is you have behavioral health coverage. If you have any kind of insurance, you have behavioral health coverage, period. A lot of people don't know that. It's really something they don't know. So if you wanna find a therapist, there's a couple of easy ways that you can go about doing it. What I recommend for people, particularly where there's an economic consideration is two things. So through that RCA website on my little thing, I linked some of the popular therapist locating websites. So the two most popular are therapist locator. You can literally just put therapist locator into Google and it'll be the first thing that comes up. Um, Psychology Today also has a therapist locator service and you can literally just put psychologist today, right? Therapist locator in Google, it'll come up. So if you put therapist locator in Google, You'll be good to go. You'll find one. You can search by regional area. You can search um, by who's close to you. That's a great way to start. The other thing that you can do, which is my second choice, would be on the back of your insurance card, whatever kind of insurance card you have, is going to be a phone number where it's sometimes referred to as like the physician locator or a serv- to find services or a health navigator or something like that. You can call that phone number. And you can say, I'm looking for a behavioral health provider who provides mental health services. And they'll direct you to someone. The other thing that you need to know in order to successfully find services is to know the different types of providers. So first of all, is a psychiatrist. A psychiatrist is a medical doctor who can prescribe medication. And that's who you wanna go see if you are in the boat of people who would like to have some medication and would like to start there. A psychologist typically does testing. And so if you're looking to get tested for ADHD or autism spectrum disorder or something like that, that's where you want to go. The majority of people misuse the term psychologist. What you want if you want a counselor is not a psychologist. You want a licensed marriage and family therapist, a licensed professional counselor, or one of the people in the family of licensed social work providers. So you wanna look for things like a social worker, a counselor, or a marriage and family therapist, if you're looking for a therapist. And that's why Therapist Locator is a great resource because it only has those types of providers in it. 
So your insurance company might not be as helpful in terms of directing you in the right spot. So that's why I always say start with therapist locator because it only has providers in there who provide talk therapy. That's such a helpful distinction because I agree with you. That's what I think confuses a lot of people of who do they need to go to in, in what circumstance, what do you think of, um, you know, we hear a lot, I actually on podcasts, uh, the ads for like better help counseling. Like it's like a, it sounds like it's an online, like for, especially during COVID and, and there are probably two parts to this, but a service like that, where it's like this online counseling versus having somebody who does a zoom or, you know, virtual um, counseling. If somebody's not comfortable during COVID, what do you, what do you think about first? What do you think about those, those services that are popping up that are kind of like these apps or online services? You know, I think they're still so new. We don't really know. Like as a researcher, I always like to go to the research and the only research we have about outcomes with BetterHelp and their sister sites is research that they paid for. So I don't know right. that we can like really count that, but something is better than nothing. So if if BetterHelp or whatever it is, is the only thing you feel comfortable doing, please go do it. Right. I think of um, those sites as like a gateway to other treatment providers, to talking to a person who you actually know and maybe see in person. In most states right now, telehealth is available. So the majority of states have permanent telehealth coverage. Some states have gone to temporary telehealth coverage during COVID. So that's something to just ask about when you meet with a provider, when you identify a a provider is do they offer telehealth? And I do, and every provider that I know does. So that's not something to worry about in terms of if you don't feel comfortable going into the office. And seeing someone face to face is there's a requirement to follow all the COVID protocols for your states. And in most states, therapists were considered healthcare professionals and had an opportunity to get the COVID vaccine. So that's, and that's a legitimate question that it is fair to ask a therapist. I think we have a cultural misperception that therapists are like just assigned to you and you get who you get. You're allowed to ask questions of your therapist. You should find someone who is a good fit for you, who you feel like you can talk to, who you want to engage with. I am never offended if a new client says to me, you know, I just don't like you. Like, I don't feel like I can talk to you. Okay, great. Thanks for telling me. Let's find you someone who can be a fit for you. Like, tell me what's wrong with me. Right. And I'll help you find someone different because I actually know a lot of other therapists. And I think that's something we have like cultural ickiness with, but it's fine. Any good therapist will be able to handle it and will refer you to someone who's a fit. It's also fine to ask them all about their practice, to ask about COVID protocols, to ask if they've been vaccinated, to ask what their plan is, how they are going to work with you. Those things are all fine. So the, for runners, the way that a runner would go about hiring a coach, all of those same questions are perfectly acceptable to ask a therapist. That's great advice. I think sometimes people feel, especially with um, medical professionals, that they they don't really have as much of a choice, but it's okay to shop around and get second opinions, yes. and see what works for you. Um, and it's okay so to ask questions. It's okay to say, how would you treat me? How would you like to work with me? It's something that I do for all new patients when I first see them is I say, here's how I work and why. And you should be suspicious of any counselor who can't and any counselor who doesn't feel comfortable with that, right? That's not someone I want to work with. That's not someone you have to work with. Ask your questions. We really appreciate that because everyone should feel empowered. Um, it's hard enough to get to a place where you say, hey, I think I need therapy. But then 
the second tier to that is you shouldn't just accept the first one you find, but rather know that you are, for lack of a better word, a customer Mm -hmm. and finding someone who you feel will be able to honor what you're going through is, is definitely a way to avoid having to go through multiple steps to find the right person. Exactly. this is great advice. Um, switching gears a little bit, there are two issues we wanted to specifically talk with you about because you're an expert in both. First is one that you touched on before, which is addiction. Um, we had a few months ago uh, an expert on who talked about addiction and exercise, but we would love to talk with you a little bit about that subject, uh, particularly what you referenced when one substitutes one addiction for another. And secondly, just especially during this time when there aren't a lot of cycles and training and races, how can one identify if they think they may be or maybe their running partner may be at a point where it's become an unhealthy addiction with respect to running? Yeah, so this is going to sound like I'm just giving you the same advice over and over again, (laughs) but if it interferes with your life, it's not healthy. So exercise is wonderful. I run every day. The issue isn't quantity, it isn't mileage, it isn't how many days a week you run. The issue is, is it messing up other parts of your life? So if your running is substantially impacting your work performance, your ability to engage with your partner, children, friends, or messing up your life, like you're always injured, you keep getting sick, you can't seem to get well, it's a problem. Like if it's impacting your life, it's a problem. And so I, th- I see a lot of runners who, um, who have a healthy interest in a sport that they love. You know, I, I have a friend who shall remain nameless, who runs every day, who loves the numbers, you know, who no joke keeps a spreadsheet. My brother actually keeps it. I'm outing him. My brother keeps a training spreadsheet. He doesn't run every day, but <laughs> like those things are cool. That's fine. I love that. I love someone who is that organized. That's really awesome. Right. But if you're over that tipping point of, I need to run and I'm willing to do that to the exclusion of important relationships or obligations, that's a problem. Or if you're feeling like angry or mad or anxious because you missed, but you didn't have that, you know, for some reason you couldn't get in that run or that workout or that particular, or you're so structured about it that if you can't get in that particular workout that you're now in a bad mood the rest of the day. Right. Cause it's messing up your life then. And I think that's like a borderline problematic, you know, it's, it's probably on the path to nothing good where you really want to look for it is like, I am need, I have that compulsion to run that need to get this workout in to the exclusion of other activities that are important to me. So like, I'm going to be in trouble at work because I'm not performing well, or I'm in trouble at home because I'm not fulfilling my obligations because I need to do the thing. And that's true for anything. I mean, if, if that's true for you for video games, that's a problem. If that's true for you for smoking, that's a problem. If it's true for you for drinking, that's a problem. I think the like major, major, major take home message for me, anything having to do with mental health is if it's interfering with your life, it's a problem. That brings up a good point too, though. Do you see a lot of um, kind of, I call it like, like addiction substitution, like where somebody may have an addiction to drugs and alcohol, and then they pick up running to help them with that. And then they get addicted to the running or something. Do you see that kind of transfer of addiction? 
Um, I think we see it more with a, like a poly substance use in cigarettes um, because of the substance piece of it. I think that generally people who have experienced some type of substance use disorder typically are just people who personality wise strive for um, repetition and who do well in a highly structured environment who do well with pattern. This is just a personality thing that a lot of people have. Like there's a lot of people who really feel more comfortable when they have a pattern, when they have a ritual around things. And running is really useful for that because it can be highly ritualized and can be a really healthy way to get that expression of ritual um, in an unstructured time like COVID, where we don't have a lot of the same sets of structures that we would normally have. So I think that that can be really helpful. It is not necessarily problematic. You know, I think we, addiction is another term that we use inappropriately in our culture when we don't really mean it. Like real addiction, anyone who's struggled with a substance use disorder will tell you that real addiction is uncontrollable. It, you know that you should do the thing that you need to do, but you can't. That's, that's the level that we're looking for in terms of thinking about running as an addiction. Is something healthy that you do to provide structure in your life? Yeah. Are there a lot of people who I think are a little wild with it and take it into a really extreme sense? Yes. But is it problematic? Probably not. You know, it's, it's probably just a weird thing that is part of the many weird things that all of us do. It reminds me of a quote that I, that I liked. I think it's addiction or obsessed is obsessed or addiction is just a word that the lazy use to describe the dedicated. Oh, I hate that. I hate that quote. Oh my gosh. That is one that I'm going to put above okay. <laughs> Above running yeah. as my therapy in terms of annoyance, right. because there's a real problem in our culture. Um, this is another soapbox around overwork, whether it's overwork in our profession or overwork in our fitness pursuits, just overwork. Generally, we tend to really value in this culture overwork to a pathological point of like a true obsession where it is unhealthy and it is impacting your life in negative ways. Yeah. And that's not, that's not what we're striving for. No, no, no matter what you do, if you're running every day, if you're running lots of miles, if you're doing the workouts, if you're keeping the spreadsheet, if you're like loving your Garmin and you're checking it every 57 seconds while you're running, as long as you're able to go to work, deal with home, manage your emotions effectively, you just love it. And that's cool. And I personally always love to see people who fall in love with something, whether it's video games or running or cosplay or whatever it is to see an adult who truly loves something is a beautiful thing. Because I think part of what we do to adults is we try to squash them down to like not caring about things. And we don't know how to identify when it's just something someone loves and that that's cool. I think we try to, we try to squash that, like, especially with the whole cultural movement around like I don't care. Like, it doesn't matter to me. Right. Like love it. That's cool. Enjoy it. (laughs) One of the pieces of running gear that we've both used for 15 years is our spy belt. It's one of our favorite pieces of running gear. Spy belt stands for small personal items. And we both started using it many years ago to carry our nutrition during races. It's great, no bounce, no chafing, and a great way to carry nutrition. But since then, I'll be honest, I use mine as my purse. I use it for my phone, my keys, wallet, and strap it on and don't have to worry about carrying a purse. 
So it's one of our favorite running items, and we are so excited to have Spybelt as one of our sponsors. And they are offering our listeners 15% off through May 15th. You can order online at spybelt.com and enter the code RUNFARTHERFASTER15, all one word, lowercase letters. Give it a try. We think that you'll love the spy belt or whatever you have to carry when you need your hands free. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, you know, we are a culture of extremes. So on the one hand, you mentioned we've got the I don't care. I just want to be laid back about everything. But then there's also the other extreme. And it's the second area that you've spoken a lot on. So we wanted to touch on it with you. And that is the culture of toxic positivity, which definitely impacts the running community and social media with respect to the running community. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and yeah. what, what that is and what that means and, and how we can kind of manage that? Yeah, I actually gave a um, TEDx UConn talk on toxic positivity. So toxic positivity is near and dear to my heart. So toxic positivity is essentially the adoption of false positive feelings to the exclusion of all other feelings. So toxic positivity comes up in those like cute little memes that we all see that are like good vibes only in the rating of things that I hate. That's way up there. (laughs) So like good vibes only, or so you're not buying t-shirts in the beach t-shirt shop. (laughs) No, really not. Um, you're like, look on the bright side all the time to the exclusion of everything else, because toxic positivity is so toxic because it restricts the range of human emotion. And that part of the reason that people engage in toxic positivity is the stigmatizing of difficult emotions or challenging emotions is a culture. We have a huge problem with stigma around mental health and that extends into the stigmatizing of difficult emotion. And we do it to kids. We do it to adults, right? Like don't cry. Don't, don't feel angry. Like righteous anger has a place. True sadness has a place. Um, and we tend to have a stigmatizing attitude towards those more difficult emotions and how that stigmatizing attitude gets expressed is in the over-focus on positivity. And that's what toxic positivity really is, is that over-focus on positivity to the exclusion of other aspects of the normal human experience. So the normal human experience includes anger and sadness and frustration and difficult emotions And just since we were talking about kids, I want to put that out there that like the normal childhood experience includes those things too. And I think I see a lot of difficult adult relationships with kids that happen that way because we hold kids to a higher standard than we hold ourselves accountable to. Um, We expect children to never give us attitude, to never have bad moods, to never talk back. Please, I talk back. Right. Adults talk back. We have bad attitudes. We hold kids to a higher standard than we hold ourselves to. And it teaches them that their emotions are not acceptable. And that's how we get to toxic positivity is that belief around other emotions not being acceptable to us and stigmatizing beliefs around them. So what we really need to try to do is a both and approach, which is things can be both catastrophic and hopeful at the same time that those things can coexist and the existence of one does not eliminate the existence of the other. 
So that's a really important point is like, I can be both despondent over the job example, right? The job that I really wanted that I didn't get, I can be despondent about that. And at the same time is I sit in my sadness and it really experienced that depth of human emotion. I can also be hopeful for the future. Those things exist at the same time. And toxic positivity is so bad because it says only the hope can exist. And you have to push out all those other experiences that are really just part of the richness of human experience. And I think everybody, everybody can help fight toxic positivity by A, don't post those memes, but B, also like find a way to talk to your friends and to change your everyday language. So if you Google toxic positivity, there's a ton of great resources about how to talk to friends who are having difficult times without minimizing or going in the direction of toxic positivity. Because I think some toxic positivity is well-meaning that we just want to like pick our friends up and we want them to be hopeful, but we're really diminishing their experience. And so there's a lot of great resources, just Google it, about what to say. And it's things like, I hear that you're struggling. That is a thing that sucks, right? Like, I'm with you. I'm going to stay with you in this struggle. Yeah, right. something we learned um, from from a, a friend of ours last year, actually, just about a year ago before we went into lockdown, was um, you know she's somebody who'd gone through a lot of really tough times, and mm-hmm. she said the question, "How are you managing?" was better to her than "How are you?" or "Are you okay?" Yeah. Is how are yeah, you because managing? Our- because that recognizes that you may not be okay, but how are you managing through it? So I think that is such a important yes. message, especially now during the pandemic when we're all feeling this like. It is okay to be not okay. Being not okay doesn't mean that you're mentally ill on the road to the mental institution. Being not okay is part of the human experience. It's part of the child experience. It's part of the existence of humanity. And I think finding better ways to talk to our friends is really important. I think that's probably another big take-home point of this is just really being thoughtful about language. Language is so powerful and so important. And saying something like, I can see that you're struggling and I'm just going to sit here with you is sometimes what we really need. And I think runners are especially equipped to this, right? Like runners have a way of saying like, man, that track interval sucks, but you're, you're okay. You're not okay, but you're okay. Right. And I'm just going to do this with you. And I'm going to tow you along around the track and we're both suffering. I can't save you from your suffering. You can't save me from my suffering. And the suffering is kind of the point. That's life too, right? Sometimes the suffering is the point and that's okay. And it's okay to be not okay in your difficult workouts. It's okay to be not okay on your difficult days. Is toxic positivity also when people, I think um, our language doesn't allow a lot of pause in between thoughts. So a lot of times, especially parents tend to jump in and try and solve a problem mm-hmm. or instead of echoing, like you just uh, exhibited, I'm, I can tell you're struggling. They instead jump right to how can we fix this? Is that also sort of in that same realm of toxic positivity? Do you see that a lot? And is that a problem or am I just making this up? <laughs> I, think pre- I think it's a precursor, right? Because it's part of denying the experience. I actually love, there's tons of resources and people can go Google these, but like, I love, I saw a great resource a few weeks ago for um, different ways to say, be careful to your children. And I love, I love the idea of that. Cause it was things like, um, 
Did you think about how you're going to get off of that? What types of things do you need to be careful of when you're throwing rocks? What types of things do you need to think about when you're playing with sticks? It's all these questions that help empower children to make their own decisions, right? And I'm totally laughing right now because every time my son got his driver's license this year and every single time he walks out the door, my husband or I always say it's like a knee jerk. Be careful. He can't stand it. He's so sick of us saying that. So give me some examples for what you say to a teenage driver besides be careful. I think think what we, what we really want to say is I trust you to make thoughtful decisions. I love that. That's but I don't trust other people. <laughs> but I don't trust the other right? drivers. Right. We need to think about what's the outcome that we're hoping for out of that message. The outcome we're hoping for out of a message of be careful to a teenager is I love you. I care about your safety. I trust you to make thoughtful decisions or watch out for those other idiots. Right. Those are the types of things that we really mean, but we use be careful as a proxy for those things. I mean, I come from the Midwest. Where did you eat means I love you. I care about you. I'm worried about your safety. I'm from the Midwest too. And there's like a lot of expressions that aren't, I love you that, I mean, I think that's everywhere, but I I totally feel you. you. I know. Did you eat? You look tired. You look tired is not an insult. It's only Midwesterners get that. But like, I think, I think what we have to do is we have to back up and think about what's my goal in this interaction. What am I trying to get out of this interaction? And what's the logical outcome of my behavior? So if I'm solving something for my child, if I'm just fixing it for them, have I taught them anything? Have I empowered them in any way? Sometimes you do need to literally just fix things, but I think we have to think about what's our goal. And so avoiding those automatic responses is really key. I saw this mom in the park the other day that I thought was doing a great job. Her kid was like jumping on the benches and jumping off the benches and like running around, right? As kids do. He jumps off the bench. He trips over something, full supermans it, falls down. (laughs) And as he's like sliding through the grass, he goes, parkour! (laughs) And I'm laughing and it's so cute. And the mom turns to him and goes, that was a really good jump. What are you going to do differently next time so that you can land it more successfully? And I was like, yes, that's like the perfect response. You know, she didn't say you're going to get hurt if you do that. She didn't say don't jump off the bench. He was obviously excited and she was worried about safety. And so she said, what are you going to do differently next time so you can land it? Those are the, that's the type of conversation that we want to be having because that's what our real goal is, right? Our real goal is not to diminish his creativity, is not to say, don't play, don't run, don't jump. Our real goal is to say, use your brain to think about how you can be more successful doing this thing. And that applies to running too. I mean, and and similarly, if you have an unsuccessful in your mind, I mean, any, any run or race is successful because you're out there doing it. But if you have not reached your goal, asking yourself instead of beating yourself up, what can I do better next time? And looking at the positive. So, and after you allow that period for sadness, because you should feel sad, right? Not achieving a goal should make us feel sad. It's, it's kind of related something when I, that I see all the time coaching is people who set only goals they can achieve because they're not comfortable failing. Like we should be failing fully 50% of our goals. If you are not failing 50% of the time, you're not reaching high enough. 
but we have so much discomfort with the feeling of sadness or disgust or defeat or disappointment that we set only goals we can achieve. I, I like to see runners who are reaching for it and who are failing and who are in the struggle. You know, Brene Brown is great for this. I love, like, if you have Netflix, check out the Brene Brown special, read her book. She talks about this, like, daring greatly and the idea of that, that we need to be more vulnerable in all of our experiences. And running is a perfect one for it. You know, you're not going to ever achieve your potential as a runner if you set only goals that you can achieve. Watch interviews with people after marathons, with professional runners after marathons who were hysterical, just so sad. And that's beautiful. Like there's beauty in that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think to that end too, you've got to hold space for yourself and be proud of yourself for what you do accomplish um, on a smaller scale. Often a runner will do a workout and, and maybe they don't hit their paces, but they still went out and executed a really hard workout. And yeah. initially, rather than focusing on, Hey, I, I did that before 7am in the morning, the focus is, well, I didn't really hit my paces. And as coaches, we're happy to be in a place where we're able to say to that runner, Hey, wait, look what you did though. And yeah. look at how consistent you were. And so, you know, the idea of coaching is to be able to get people to a place where they can do that for themselves too. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can't coach a person forever. The idea is you're giving them the tools. So eventually when they're out on their own, they're able to do that. And I think yep. to your point, that's a really hard thing to do sometimes is to set goals, knowing you'll fail, but then at yep. the same time to not be so hard on yourself that you can't congratulate yourself for the smaller victories. Yeah. Well, and that's a both and situation too, right? Like I can, I am allowed to be both disappointed that I didn't hit my paces and happy that I got out there and did it. That those things are not mutually exclusive. And we have such a cultural difficulty with that. Like I can be both disappointed and happy. I can be both sad and hopeful. That's okay. And I think that's part of what good coaches can do is to say like, yeah, it's okay to be disappointed in your performance. And also at the same time, hold something else. It's great advice and great advice for life too. As you mentioned, it's okay to be despondent and hopeful at the same time. And I think that's a, that's a great lesson in day to day. Lisa and I have found, we, we've discussed this a lot. When it's a sunny day, we feel a lot more hopeful than despondent. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and <laughs> so we are seeing a pattern within ourselves with that too. But uh, Rachel, you've been super helpful and you've really illuminated for us some of the particularly some of the language that I know I've used in the past, I'm going to really be more mindful of that. And I so appreciate you bringing that to our attention and also helping us navigate how one can go about finding therapy and the resources. And we will certainly link to all of that. Um, before we leave, is there any advice that you have for our listeners to get through um, where we are right now? We'd like to say we're somewhere between mile, I don't know, 14 and in 20, 24 in this, in this marathon, what advice do you have for our listeners? Well, we're asking a lot of our guests this lately, and we, we feel like each person has brought a lot of value to the table. So tell us what your advice is. Really, my big one is that there is beauty in the struggle and finding a way to appreciate that is really empowering. Um, it's everything is not always wonderful and perfect and great, but that's special and important and part of the human experience. 
The same thing is true, you know, if you really want to modify your language around mental health, it's okay to be a work in progress and to be trying and failing. Um, I think that that vulnerability is really important to allow ourselves to struggle with things and to allow ourselves to be in it. Um, it's something that I talk about with one of my friends who's also a therapist all the time is like, today I felt like I was in it. Like I was really in the struggle and to let that have its own space, that there's something special about that as well, about the opportunity to struggle, about the opportunity to experience sadness and disappointment, that those things are so much part of the richness of humanity. Um, you know, I, there's lots of research about lottery winners and things like that. And this, the idea that's come out of that is that money can't buy you happiness. Um, but what's really important about that is that when people win the lottery, they talk a lot about experiences of loss and grief and sadness because they know their life will never be the same. That's important. It's important to acknowledge that even in probably one of the best things that could ever happen to a human being, I'm willing to try and test it out, you know, for the sake of research, but even in one of the best moments of our lives, there is some melancholy. And that's what makes them rich. That's what makes them complex and wonderful and important. So I think as people are, you know, in it, in COVID and struggling and having difficult days is to just really try to find some peacefulness in that. But that's part of what makes it rich is the complexity of human experience. That's excellent advice. And I think that's advice that we can carry forward from these COVID times, I think these COVID times gave us a really good opportunity to focus on this yeah. for all of us, yeah. that there are going to be challenges. And none of us, I think, have gone through this year without feeling those, those negative emotions mm -hmm. or that we associate with negative emotions and then having to figure out how to frame them so that, um, you know, that it's productive. And so yeah. you really helped us a framework to this and not only, you know, generally and, and specific to COVID, but as coaches to help our runners um, mm -hmm. during COVID with their goals and achieving their goals and dealing with disappointment. Um, it's such a, it's so helpful to have this framework. Um, can you tell our runners if they want to get in touch with you or find out more about you, where they can find you? Yeah. So you can find um, me professional if you're interested in the research side of things um, at University of Connecticut and also coaching, therapy, um, that kind of thing through Tambling Consulting. So I'm tamblingconsulting at gmail.com. It's super easy to find me there. And um, yeah, I'm really easily Googleable. So if people are interested <laughs> in finding me, um, I'm pretty easy to Google. And I think for, for anyone who's really struggling with their mental health during this time, I would just say reach out, you know, find a therapist, take the first step. Um, the system is pretty overwhelmed because of COVID. So be patient and really, you know, try to find your way through that. And in the meantime, the best advice that I ever heard in my entire life about experiencing depression or anxiety was from a depression researcher when I was an undergrad. And he said, anything worth doing is worth doing badly that we as a culture tend to say, I'm not going to start unless I can do it well. And depression really eats away at that. Like when you're experiencing depression or anxiety, a somewhat simple task, like eating food, um, people who are often in a mental health crisis, see all of the like 157 little tasks that it takes to get to that one task. And so anything worth doing is worth doing badly. Just start doing something. Do anything. Love it. 
right? Love it. By the kitchen points for walking by the kitchen. You did a really bad job of making a sandwich. Great. Good work. Next time I make a bad meal, I'll make sure to say that. (laughs) (laughs) No, really. Thank you so much, Rachel. You've been terrific and we appreciate all of the advice that you've provided. And we know our listeners will benefit tremendously as have we. So thank you. We're part of of the group who's changing the narrative, right? Cultural stories is things like this, is people like us changing our cultural narrative comes from the bottom. It comes from all of us just trying to do this in our own lives. And so stuff like this is so important. Thank you, Rachel. And uh, good luck with all of your teaching and endeavors. And we hope we get to meet you in person sometime. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryant. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.